0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 482nd meeting of the Civil War Round Table. As is the unfortunate custom, which I was able to avoid last week, I must, unfortunately burden our members once again with a recitation of someone who has received their last posting. I would like to read from the obituary of our member Maury Fisher, who was 87 years old. On the day of his death he died Wednesday at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. He ran a hardware store. He came to our meetings for years and years and years. Was active in Ravenswood. I think it might be worthwhile to remember perhaps the ultimate Maury Fisher story. The stories of Maury sitting at the front table right in front of the speaker and sleeping through the speech are well known. But I think... The whole Maury Fisher experience in this round table can be summed up by the immortal talk of the life and times of the USS Rattler Union gunboat. When after a boring recitation of every day, every single day in the life of this gunboat, even if the speaker had nothing more to say, then we steamed up the river for coal and the next day we steamed down the river for fresh water. That speech ended with the immortal line and thus the USS Rattler sank beneath the waves and Maury Fisher cried out, thank God. (laughs) I think that's the way Maury would have liked to be remembered. He was one of our curmudgeons, another of those people who have lent this round table color and fun. And humanity, and he'll be missed. And I'd like to ask you for a moment of silence on his behalf. Thank you. Now, on to some fun stuff. And now the end is near, but not quite yet, so don't get antsy. I still have time to, by executive fiat, change the site of the battlefield tour from Antietam to the Red River in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> Ferdinand, Ferdinand Marcos has uh, promised me complete military aid in case I wanted to have a coup. Uh, General Noriega has offered me a distributorship. But uh, that will be happening uh, a little bit later on. Tonight, you will get to to show the same warmth and approbation for your new president that you have shown for me. Our speaker tonight is someone who it could be truly said needs no introduction to the Civil War Roundtable, but I feel that maybe a little vignette might be worthwhile. When I called John Simon to ask him to speak, he had told me that he had always wanted to give a talk to the round table on Baker and Ball's bluff. And he asked me if the round table would not be disappointed if he didn't speak on Grant. It is rare, I think, uh, of someone who is as well known as Dr. Simon, with a reputation as Dr. Simon has, to be worried about what we would think of his talk. Uh, That is an insight into the man. I have listened with interest to various talks on Grant. I have listened with interest to talks on Daniel Harmon Brush. And when he told me that he would like to have given this talk, I said, I am subjecting them to the Marines, I am subjecting them to a bunch of topics they never heard before, and I would be very pleased if he would give this talk. We kept until the very last moment, the wraps on the title of this talk, if you notice month after month it was to be announced. It is a great personal pleasure for me and it, I'm sure it will be a pleasure for you to give your kind attention to Dr. John Simon on Edward D. Baker, Balls Fluff, and the Politics of Command. John?
1: Thank you. Really pleasure to be here. I thought it might be a good idea Instead of giving one of my usual roundtable talks, the kind my suit could deliver if I'm not wearing it, uh, I learned something new, tried something new, and uh, wrestled with a problem that, uh, in some respects, has yeah. nagged at me for years. Uh, for six months in 1862, uh, Lincoln knew General Charles P. Stone uh, was imprisoned in New York Harbor. He knew that General Stone had not been present at the Battle of Balls Bluff. He knew that Stone had been imprisoned in some way to expiate the crime of Balls Bluff. He also knew or should have known this imprisonment uh, was in contravention of the Articles of War and indeed the entire situation is one in which Lincoln knowingly countenances the imprisonment of a general following an unsuccessful military operation and it sounds more like Stalin than Lincoln. And I've been very curious about the circumstances under which this behavior occurred. The result is this. The question of Lincoln's successor as president loomed early in the Civil War and McClellan's assignment to command the Army of the Potomac following that defeat at first bull run put a Democrat into position to crush the rebellion and ride the victory into the White House. During the fall of 1861, even the most partisan Republicans hoped that McClellan would win the war, but had no objection to an alternate military hero. John C. Vermont, the former Republican presidential nominee who took command in the West when McClellan took command in the East, disappointed his supporters with a series of political blunders and military misadventures in Missouri. As Fremont faltered, Lincoln's closest personal friend in Congress made an awkward bid for military glory in Virginia that led to his death as a hero and a martyr. Baker had arrived in Philadelphia from England in 1815 at the age of four. At 14, his parents took him to New Harmony, Indiana, and one year later to Belleville, Illinois. He was admitted to the bar at the age of 19 and elected to the legislature seven years later, and then began an impressive career as state senator, congressman, colonel in the Mexican War, and then congressman again. In the early 1850s, when Whig political opportunities diminished in Illinois, he became prominent in Republican politics in California, and a few months after moving to Oregon in 1860, with a coalition of Republicans and Douglas Democrats, He defeated the administration, Democrats, and won election to the U.S. Senate. Indirectly, Lincoln had endorsed that candidacy. Lincoln had known Baker since the 1830s, and they'd competed for the one safe Whig congressional seat in Illinois. Lincoln demonstrated their friendship in 1846 by naming a son for Baker, the only one of four sons not named for a relative. Their careers had run parallel for many years, and James McDougall and James Shields, other Illinois legal associates of Lincoln, had gone west to improve their political fortunes, and Lincoln himself had been offered a post in Oregon. Despite similarities in political careers, personality differences abounded. For Baker, who was an adventurer, politics offered opportunities for personal expression rather than public service. His flamboyant oratory often lacked substance, and he was as avid for military glory as for office. He loved the dramatic. When he returned from the Mexican front in uniform as dispatch bearer, he delivered a rousing speech to the House of Representatives before resigning his seat. In 1857, his grandiloquent speech at the funeral of Senator David Broderick did much to make the late Senator a martyr and Baker a hero. In 1860, when Republicans considered opposition to extension of slavery, the cornerstone of their party, Baker espoused popular sovereignty, far more appealing to the normally Democratic voters of Oregon. As a boy, he wept when he learned that foreign birth prevented him from serving as president. Or at least that's the way the story goes. Everybody knew the story. Everybody believed it in the sense of uh, representing Baker's ambitions. In 1860, when Baker uh, visited Springfield after traveling to Washington to be sworn in as Senator, Lincoln warmly welcomed him. Baker addressed Lincoln as Mr. President, to which Lincoln replied, None of that between us, Baker. Baker introduced Lincoln at his inauguration, a ceremony that was uh, guarded by troops under the command of the one man in the country, that uh, General Winfield Scott was certain he could trust. That's, of course, Colonel Charles P. Stone. As the only Republican senator from the Pacific Coast, Baker hoped to control California appointments as well as those for Oregon. A delegation of California Republicans who called on Lincoln to protest that their party would be weakened if the senator from Oregon controlled patronage, were embarrassed to find that Lincoln had just breakfasted with Baker would not discuss California patronage without him. Lincoln asked the committee if he might keep its papers and do with them as he wished. When they assented, he immediately threw the papers into the fire. Although Baker's allies did not make a clean sweep of the California offices, the senator from Oregon exerted tremendous influence. Lincoln could do much for Baker and Baker could do much in return. He persuaded Cassius Clay to take the Russian mission and to forego his claims to a cabinet post or the Spanish mission. Lincoln was greatly relieved to send the impetuous and erratic Clay out of the country and so far away to boot. Baker handled another troublesome assignment by traveling to uh, Fort Monroe to inspect the activities of Benjamin F. Butler, returning as Butler's best friend. Most importantly, Baker furnished Lincoln with a link to the Congressional Radicals. Baker had commanded that brigade in the Mexican War and his oratorical brilliance and inspiring presence seemingly suited him for military command. At the opening of the Civil War, when transporting troops from the Pacific coast was highly impractical, he recruited troops, most of them in New York City, uh, credited to uh, Pennsylvania, and then christened the California Regiment. His Pennsylvania commission as colonel, under current uh, reasoning, permitted him to keep his seat in the Senate. Lincoln offered Baker a commission as brigadier general, which he declined. To accept, men were uh, resigning from the Senate before he was guaranteed an opportunity for higher command. And as early as May, he would asked Lincoln to appoint him major general. In August, he told a friend, I have some peculiar notions as to the part I am to play in this extraordinary war. It's doubtful if I ever again take my seat in the Senate. I'm certain I shall not live through the war, and if my troops should show any want of resolution, I shall fall in the first battle. I cannot afford, after my career in Mexico and as a senator of the United States, to turn my face from the enemy. Now, Republican leaders assumed that McClellan would act with the same vigor and speed he'd shown in the Western Virginia campaign, and to McClellan, the cases were not at all parallel. He'd earlier taken quick action to fill a military vacuum before Confederates could consolidate a defense. The Army of the Potomac had already challenged a well-organized Confederate army in Northern Virginia, which held strong positions and received local support. Forcing another battle between the same armies meant risking another disastrous defeat. McClellan preferred to reorganize and strengthen the army, then advance when the superior power of the North assured success. The Republicans feared that some agreement between North and South would leave slavery issues unsettled and permit Democrats to regain power. No wonder then that an ambitious Republican Senator aspired to military success that would give him command and a brilliant political future. The failure of Fremont demonstrated the proper political ideas were inadequate without some military ability. When the North had not won a noteworthy victory, the first successful general could become a national hero. On September 21st, Baker received that commission as Major General, which would place him second in rank, uh, to McClellan himself in the Army of the Potomac. He refused to resign in his seat In the Senate, he claimed, because of his deep sense of obligation to the state of Oregon. When he died one month later, however, he not yet officially declined the commission, but rather than accept this commission as a gift from his old friend Lincoln, he preferred to earn it on the battlefield. Stakes were high and the risks reasonable. Luck is an element in war, while boldness and bravery often determine the outcome. Always the avid gambler, Baker decided to take the chance, but had an obstacle in his way, the lack of an independent command. That California regiment was assigned to Brigadier General Stone, who protected the Potomac Line from the Maryland shore, and to achieve distinction, Baker needed an opportunity to triumph in battle. In October, Baker camped in Maryland some 30 miles above Washington. Across the Potomac where the foothills of the Bull Run Mountains, Guarded by small and scattered groups of Confederates, and about five miles beyond lay Leesburg, a railroad terminus commanding a gap in the mountains. Although Stone's army could have crossed the river without great difficulty, it would then occupy a less defensible position without gaining any specific strategic advantage. On October 19th, receiving reports that the enemy might evacuate Leesburg, McClellan's favorite way of gaining a victory, McClellan sent a force under General George A. McCall to Drainsville, which was 10 miles from Leesburg, to map the area and also to test enemy strength. McClellan ordered Stone, who was some miles upriver, to create a diversion. Parties of Stone's troops penetrated several miles without encountering significant opposition, and one group reported an undefended Confederate camp later discovered to be merely a row of fruit trees which had looked like tents to overexcited soldiers. On his own initiative and uninformed that McCall had since withdrawn, Stone sent out a force the next morning to destroy that supposed camp. Since he also sent over a reconnaissance at Edwards Ferry several miles downstream, he remained in Maryland to supervise both operations. When the force attacking the fruit trees Encountered some enemy skirmishers, he sent Baker to take charge with discretionary orders to push on or to fall back, depending on enemy force. On his way to take command, Baker met a messenger from Colonel Lee, who has already crossed the river, sent to inform Stone that if he wished to open the campaign into Virginia, now was the time. When Baker heard this, he exclaimed, I'm going over immediately with my whole force, to take command. His brigade was unprepared to cross the river. There's no bridge, only a few scows for ferrying. The Potomac's about a quarter mile wide, and the scows took 45 minutes for a round trip. The quartermaster wondered if the column was expected to walk across on the water. Instead of crossing with the van, Baker remained on the Maryland shore, unnecessarily supervising the obtaining of another boat while his men took haphazard positions on Ball's Bluff across the river. Because no enemy occupied the bluffs, this piecemeal fairing caused no immediate damage, but Baker's men crossed into enemy country without adequate means of retreat or reinforcement. Although Stone believed that U.S. troops uh, at Drainsville still threatened Leesburg, Confederate Brigadier General Nathan G. Evans, knew that he could use his entire force at Ball's Bluff. Some 1,700 Confederates attacked an exposed flank of Baker's force and an inflatting fire cut down the troops. Just as complete panic began, Baker was killed. The men scrambled down the bluff, overloaded and sank those scows. Some surrendered and others tried to swim the river, with many of those drowning in the attempt. The battle was a complete disaster, and the U.S. Army lost more than 900 of the 1,700 engaged. Three months to the day after first bull run, the North suffered another grievous defeat in Virginia, less costly, but every bit as humiliating. There's little uncertainty as to where responsibility lay. McClellan wrote privately that Baker violated all military rules and precautions. Instead of meeting the enemy, with double air force and a good ferry behind him, he was outnumbered three to one and had no means of retreat. McClellan's telegram to his division commanders stated that the disaster was caused by errors committed by the immediate commander, not General Stone. With time to consider, McClellan's report was more tactful. Nonetheless, He emphasized that he'd never ordered an attack. McClellan's orders to keep a good lookout upon Leesburg implied no more than that. McClellan had intended only a feint, and that on the day before the battle. Stone used his discretion to send forces over the next day to destroy that enemy camp erroneously believed to be situated near the bluffs. Now Stone occupied a more difficult position because he should be given responsibility for the actions of his direct subordinate. In ordering the destruction of that camp, Stone gave responsibility for attack or withdrawal to Baker. Stone reported only that his troops were reconnoitering and later that our troops appear to be advancing under Baker. The great losses occurred when the scramble began after Baker's death. McClellan then directed Stone to entrench his men on the Virginia side and Sta- Stone Did try to obey, only arrived too late. In point of fact, three converging columns from Drainsville, Edwards Ferry, and Balls Bluff could easily have seized Leesburg and perhaps bagged its defenders. Early reports from Balls Bluff led Stone to believe this command can occupy Leesburg today, and then McClellan ordered its capture. Stone, however, Based his optimism on belief in support um, from Drainsville and McClellan failed to recognize that stone relied upon a non-existent division and neither reckoned on Baker's rashes. Captain Young of Baker's staff made it clear that Baker courted death or glory by his constant exposure to enemy fire. When Young warned Baker that the Confederates had three regiments across the river, Baker replied, then there'll be more for us to whip. I love that. Uh, Flash ahead 15 years, and it's Colonel Custer saying, come on, boys, there are plenty of Indians for all of us. Uh, There's a little bit of that same glory-seeking and uh, preposterous posturing right there at Ball's Bluff. Colonel Hinks of the 19th Massachusetts reported that no more unfortunate position could have been forced upon us by the enemy for making an attack, much less selected by ourselves. Colonel Cogswell had shown Baker the weakness of his troop placement, and Baker had done nothing about it. Lieutenant Colonel Isaac Wister of the California Regiment, close friend of Baker, believed that the loss of the battle had been Baker's fault. Stone's report brought out facts without drawing conclusions. Stone wrote that he left the question of movement in force to Baker. And only a few days later, Stone wrote more vigorously, that Colonel Baker was determined at all hazards to fight a battle is clear from the fact that he never crossed to examine the field, never gave an order to the troops in the advance, and never sent forward to ascertain their position until he ordered over his force and passed over a considerable portion of it. The plain truth is that this brave and impetuous officer was determined at all hazards to bring on an action and made use of the discretion allowed him to do it. Baker fell with that commission as Major General that he neither accepted nor refused. When Baker had uh, received authority to raise the California Regiment he strongly urged Worcester to do the recruiting and to accept a commission as lieutenant-colonel by saying, You know my relations with Lincoln. I can assure you that within six months I shall be a major general, and you'll have a brigadier general's commission and a satisfactory command under me. Fremont, in an excellent position to comment on the significance of Baker's death, wrote, I'm so sorry for him. The way, after long waiting, was just opening. As a national hero, distinguished by bravery, Baker caught that popular imagination. Few cared to outrage public sentiment by questioning Baker's disinterested patriotism or to go beyond comment that he suffered his dashing zeal to outrun his discretion. Baker's hold on uh, Lincoln's affections was demonstrated by his grief after Baker's death. When Lincoln received the news to McClellan's headquarters, a newspaper reporter uh, described, tears rolling down his furrowed cheeks, his face pale and wan, his heart heaving with emotion. He paced the floors of the White House through the night and was in seclusion through the day. Mary Lincoln reportedly felt the same grief and 11-year-old Willie Lincoln, who had been kissed farewell by Baker the day before he died, wrote a poem printed in the newspapers. Three days later, Baker's brother and stepson arrived with blood-stained orders found in Baker's hat. Gentlemen, my Baker was murdered, Lincoln was reported to say. One week later, the entire cabinet decided upon Stone's removal, a decision reversed after Stone actually explained his conception of the Battle of Balls Bluff. When the senatorial eulogies were delivered in December, Lincoln broke precedent by attending, and was visu- visibly shaken by the eloquence. Lincoln had lost one of his oldest and dearest friends, and his emotions, which had clouded his judgment when he offered to appoint Baker a major general, continued to influence military policy. If there's no direct evidence the Baker planned to displace McClellan, He certainly had an objective beyond the action of the day. Winfield Scott's advanced age, physical incapacity, and poor relationship with McClellan pointed toward retirement. The post of General-in-Chief with its complex administrative uh, functions, however, would have no appeal for Baker unless combined with active command of the Army. McClellan might have been uh, promoted to General-in-Chief with the Army of the Potomac assigned to Baker, or Baker could take that post of General-in-Chief and at the same time assume field command of the Army of the Potomac as McClellan actually did after Scott's retirement. Within a week after Baker's death, Senators Trumbull, Wade, and Chandler were in Washington determined to effect changes in military command as if they'd expected Baker to displace McClellan. The senators returned to Washington in no pleasant mood, and Wade wrote, in view of the late defeat on the Potomac, all is gloom and despondency here. All are discontented. Old Abe is a fool and is under the entire control of Governor Seward, who is by nature a coward and a quack. A majority of the cabinet are at heart opposed to the war and are for putting the army into immediate winter quarters. I hope to frighten and stare them into a fight. That's Wade in fine fettle. Wade and Chandler spent three hours with McClellan, who insisted he could not possibly advance until Scott had been removed and the senators promised to do all they could. The next evening, uh, Trumbull, Wade, and Chandler visited Lincoln to worry the administration into a battle. Lincoln defended McClellan, and took the whole party to his headquarters. McClellan said that Wade preferred an unsuccessful battle to delay. He said a defeat could be easily repaired by the swarming recruits. McClellan answered that he'd rather have a few recruits before a victory than a good many after a defeat. Again, McClellan blamed the defeat on Scott. If McClellan believed that he'd satisfied radicals that Scott was the only villain, he was quite wrong. When Scott retired to West Point, the army remained immobile, and pressure for an advance increased. By late fall, McClellan had lost much of the confidence he brought to Washington the previous summer. He saw about him ambitious generals bidding for his position and politicians ready uh, to aid them. A member of McClellan's staff said of Ball's Bluff, on that day, a fatal hesitation took possession of McClellan. Instead of pushing ahead as expeditiously as possible, he began to envision some smashing victory that might destroy with one blow the rebels before him and the Republicans behind him. He viewed himself as an island of sanity in the midst of tides of opinion, sweeping the country to an expanded war on the institutions of the South. Only if he retained command could the country survive, and the slightest error could give politicians their chance to remove him. Torn between alternatives of vigorous action to strengthen his hold on command and caution To prevent premature removal, McClellan chose the latter. Grave defects of character led McClellan to that choice. When Congress reconvened in December, McClellan had held command for four months without striking the enemy. The facts of Ball's Bluff convicted a prominent Republican senator of leading his troops to destruction in a gamble designed to advance his personal ambitions. The public, however, demanded another explanation of this fiasco. Congressman Roscoe Conkling presented a resolution calling upon the Secretary of War for information concerning Balls Bluff. Three days later, Senator Chandler requested a committee to investigate Bo- Balls Bluff and Bull Run. Others demanded explanations for Lexington and Wilson's Creek, Belmont, and Big Bethel. Senator Grimes amended to provide for a joint committee to investigate the entire war and the motion carried 33 to 3. In the House, resolution was quickly passed. Thus the Committee on the Conduct of the War emerged, which represented the radical wing of the Republican Party, formed an important part of its drive towards national rule, impinged on an executive area of government, and by its very existence, gave Lincoln and his close advisors a vote of no confidence. This committee intended to destroy McClellan. In addition to a direct attack through testimony uh, from his subordinates on the reasons for his inaction, the committee hoped to use the evidence on Ball's Bluff to vindicate Baker, to destroy Stone, and to condemn McClellan. At his second meeting, the committee decided to summon McClellan for testimony. But the day appointed marked the beginning of a bout with typhoid that lasted some three weeks. After Lincoln's first interview with the committee, he wrote to McClellan, I hear that the doings of an investigating committee give you some uneasiness. You may be entirely relieved on this point. The gentlemen of the committee were with me an hour and a half last night, and I found them in a perfectly good mood. This is Wade and Chandler in a good mood? Don't believe it for a minute. The House had passed that resolution of Roscoe Conkling, asking the Secretary of War what measures had been taken to uh, discover the causes for defeat at Ball's Bluff, and Secretary of War Simon Cameron referred this inquiry to McClellan, who replied that an inquiry would be detrimental to public service. Conkling delivered an angry speech, claiming that this unresponsive reply insulted the House. He described the battle as the most atrocious military murder ever committed in our history as a people. He implicated both McClellan and Stone, assuming that uh, the object of this expedition was the capture of Leesburg, for which they'd sent insufficient force. When Conkling finished his speech, he slumped back in his seat, while his brother Frederick, who was also a congressman, covered him with a cloak. Then, in a studied pose of his noble figure, his face to the crowded ladies' gallery, his golden curls clustering about his fine head, he affected to sleep. The country was never safe with Roscoe Conkling in Congress. That very same day, the Committee on the Conduct of the War met with the President and the Cabinet to ask that McClellan be removed and replaced by Irvin McDowell as Commander of the Army of the Potomac. Secretary of the Treasury, Salmon P. Chase, who'd been active in the McDowell movement and coached the previous evening by Chandler, claimed that this would relieve McClellan from the pressure of too many duties. Lincoln, who was much disturbed by the meeting and eager for McClellan to reach an understanding with the committee, urged him to testify at the earliest moment your health will permit, today if possible. But it was nearly a week before McClellan was up to it. I'm so much better this morning than I'm going before the joint committee. If I escape alive, I'll report when I get through." McClellan now advanced uh, plans for an attack on Richmond in the near future. Lincoln and others doubted the wisdom of McClellan's intent to attack Richmond from the east rather than from the north, requiring this seaborne operation which provided no cover for Washington in case of defeat. So long as McClellan gave signs of vigorous action, however, the movement to replace him stalled. The president stated the other day in my presence that there was probably but one man in the country more anxious for a battle than himself, and that man was McClellan, reported one congressman. I wish every man in our land could have heard him. Those who heard Lincoln's conversation that evening, however, would have heard a despondent president Desperately planning to take personal command of the army. The situation changed when Lincoln obtained Cameron's resignation and appointed Edwin M. Stanton as his successor. Most Republicans believed that Stanton's position in the Democratic Party made his loyalty suspect, and even his vigorously patriotic stand during the secession winter did not overcome that handicap. Stanton soon gave radicals evidence of his patriotism, by joining the crusade against McClellan, previously one of his dearest friends. The committee struck at McClellan through Stone. On December 18th, Charles Sumner had complained in the Senate about the use of troops to return fugitive slaves, furnishing examples from Stone's command. Massachusetts troops in Stone's brigade had written letters of complaint to the governor of Massachusetts then forwarded to Sumner. Professional soldier with a rigid conception of military discipline and a touch of the Martinet. Stone followed orders in permitting loyal men to reclaim their slaves and was outraged uh, that insubordinate letters of protest were even given a hearing. He wrote Sumner, an angry and insulting letter of objection, including a veiled challenge to a duel, and then Sumner turned this over to Cameron. Through involvement in the fugitive slave issue and then insulting uh, Sumner, Stone lost friends when he most needed them. When Conkling had attacked Stone for the handling of Ball's Bluff, Stone asked McClellan for a court of inquiry, or at least permission to publish an explanation, and McClellan refused, perhaps at that point, hoping to ride out the storm. On January 5th, Stone appeared before the Committee on the Conduct of the War. He denied returning slaves to secessionists, and stuck to his version of Ball's Bluff, Colonel Baker chose to bring on a battle and, I'm sorry to say, handled his troops unskillfully in it and a disaster occurred which ought not to have occurred. The committee later heard much derogatory testimony on Stone, later uh, largely from officers of the 2nd New York Volunteers, an undisciplined regiment. Stone returned slaves to secessionists, exchanged letters with rebels, sent mysterious signals across the river, refused to shell enemy property, and more. On January 11th, the committee visited Cameron with its material to date, and on the evening of January 28th, presented it to Cameron's successor, Stanton. And that evening, Stanton wrote out the order for Stone's arrest. When McClellan went uh, to the committee room to ask another chance for Stone to testify, Wade agreed. Unaware of charges against him, Stone was unable to refute them to the committee's satisfaction. On February 7th, the committee uh, heard Reverend Robert Kellen saying that the blood-stained orders found in Baker's hat after the battle proved that he'd been forced to fight a battle on disadvantageous terms. These orders, then at the War Department, were not called for, and McClellan ordered the arrest of Stone the next day. Hustled away to Fort Lafayette, New York Harbor, and closely guarded, Stone began his 189 days of incarceration. When news broke, McClellan lay in bed under a doctor's care. The committee did not need to prove any of the various accusations against Stone. The order for arrest came from the Secretary of War through the Commanding General, and now the Army had to prove the case. Two days after the arrest, Seward asked to see the testimony against Stone, Wade and Chandler, um, delivered it to the White House, where parts of the transcript were read aloud to Lincoln and Seward, who may have doubted that there was a substantial case against Stone, but preferred to let the committee have its way. Lincoln's emotional response to Baker was reinforced by the serious illness of Willie, who died a week later. Once Stone was imprisoned, the burden of proof shifted from the accusers to the accused, at least so far as the public was concerned. Stone's apparently faithful service was balanced against some dread secret known only to the military. Not until April 11th was a resolution asking for information from the War Department on the Stone case introduced in the Senate. Senator McDougal, apparently Stone's sole supporter, began a violent attack on Stanton. He presented a letter to Stone from one of his friends, asserting his faith in him, and uh, asking what he might do to help, which Stanton had uh, returned to the sender as improper. Stanton had not answered a letter from Stone's attorney, nor one signed by three California congressmen. Nor had McDougall been allowed to see the Secretary of War on three visits to the War Department three times. He'd refused McClellan's request for a court-martial for Stone. McDougall concluded that Stanton wielded dictatorial powers in defiance of law. And then he was answered by Wade, Sir, the man who invokes the Constitution in forbearance of the law to punish traitors is himself a sympathizer. There never was a man yet who stood up in this Senate from the time when Mr. Breckinridge preached daily in favor of constitutional guarantees until now and set up constitutional b- barriers uh, against punishment for treason, but what is in his innermost heart of hearts a traitor. McDougal returned to the attack for several days thereafter. He was apparently the greatest drunk in the Senate at that time, uh, absolutely fearless in his assault on the administration, Perhaps oblivious to what other people were saying about him, uh, he attacked broadly the Committee on the Conduct of the War, using many references to the Inquisition. He made some headway at least, for Wade uh, retreated from his prior militancy to claim that Stone had been shown the testimony against him, which wasn't true. State, uh, Wade said less about treason, but denounced whining, which is not a federal crime was a federal crime that jails would be full. The Sumner announced that contrary to rumor he had nothing to do with Stone's arrest. Finally a modified resolution of inquiry passed the Senate. Well, refusing to send the Senate information on the Stone case, Lincoln assured senators that he assumed responsibility for the arrest. Was McClellan ordered Stone's arrest, constitutional guarantees of fair and speedy trial apparently no longer applied. Kept in ignorance of charges against him, Stone was refused uh, any kind of hearing while long imprisonment destroyed his career. Released after six months, he asked McClellan to assign him to serve the Army of the Potomac in any useful capacity. McClellan asked Stanton for permission, claiming, I have no doubt as to the loyalty and devotion of General Stone. Once released, Stone did discover that the order for his arrest had come from McClellan. Stone asked for an explanation and was told that McClellan had acted as the result of an examination of a refugee from Leesburg, which agreed with testimony taken by the committee. Stone then asked for the name of the refugee and the nature of the testimony McClellan replied that he looked for it among his papers, and it's still there. McClellan couldn't find it. Historians have found it there. A rehash of old rumors bearing Alan Pinkerton's endorsement as the man had not made a favorable impression. You can imagine what kind of scum it takes to make an unfavorable impression on Alan Pinkerton, and had even been imprisoned. The committee now permitted Stone to read testimony against him and then to testify again. Stung by McClellan's treachery, Stone turned against him, giving the committee the adverse opinion it always welcomed. Stone dropped the attack on Baker, emphasizing instead McClellan's failure to inform him of uh, McCall's withdrawal. As a crowning piece of evidence against McClellan, he offered that high-handed and unjustified arrest. The committee that destroyed Stone had now developed a new charge against McClellan. The members of the committee now offered Stone their sympathy, assuming no responsibility for his arrest, but congratulating him upon his ability to refute the charges against him. During a final appearance before the committee, McClellan was again asked about Ball's Bluff. He was an old favorite by this time. Wary of attacking either Stone or Baker, he devoted most of his time to asserting that he had no responsibility for the battle. With the last twist of the screw, the committee asked why, then, he'd arrested Stone. McClellan again fell back on that miserable Leesburg refugee and added that Stanton had deferred his request to hold a trial by stating that the committee had not yet finished its work. The final committee report aimed at McClellan had no need to blame Stone for that defeat at Ball's Bluff. The imprisonment of Stone, Satisfied public demand for, deven- for vengeance, for the loss at Balls Bluff, and provided that useful lesson to McClellan. For the first test of strength, the committee had an ideal issue: the vindication of Baker, one that roused the sympathy of other uh, senators and, of course, the president. It was assisted by a new Secretary of War, eager to join the winning side. The victim was a straight-laced soldier without the slightest bit of political sense. McClellan made the fatal mistake of believing that the committee would be satisfied by concession. Through all these adventitious circumstances, the committee had established power and precedent for further management of the military. While McClellan led the Army of the Potomac in the Peninsular Campaign in spring 1862, Stone remained in prison, kept there by some, who would happily have placed McClellan in an adjoining cell. Fear of defeat prevented McClellan from making full use of his military ability, whatever that was. McClellan, however, remained his own worst enemy. He'd constantly spoken of imminent victory, rousing false expectations and that damaged public confidence, and then strengthened his enemies. During the first wave of anger, after Ball's bluff, he diverted the clamor of revenge to Scott, when the Committee on the Conduct of the War pursued Stone, he sacrificed a loyal and competent officer, and later on he virtually abandoned Fitz John Porter, labeled a traitor for loyalty to his commander. By temporizing, he created dangerous precedents for civilian control of military affairs. Whether or not he was timid on the field of battle, his reactions to political pressure were indeed cowardly. His letters to his wife opened a Pandora's box of unpleasant personal qualities, pride, arrogance, selfishness, intolerance, suspicion, and insubordination, and these defects, not his military abilities, gave radicals their chance to destroy him. In 1864, on taking command of all U.S. forces, Grant hoped to bring McClellan back to the field but McClellan had already become too deeply enmeshed in Democratic politics. Later, Grant labeled McClellan one of the mysteries of the war. It has always seemed to me that the critics of McClellan did not consider this vast and cruel responsibility. The war, a new thing to all of us. The Army knew everything to do from the outset with a restless people and Congress. McClellan was a young man when this evolved upon him, and if he did not succeed, It was because the conditions of success were so trying. If McClellan had gone into the war as Sherman, Thomas, or Meade had fought his way along enough, I have no reason to suppose that he would not have won as high a distinction as any of us. Grant also believed that if Stone had had a chance, he would have made his mark in the war. Professional soldiers ultimately won the Civil War and McClellan and Stone might have stood among the victors Had Baker not fallen at Ball's Bluff. If Baker had survived He would have had to explain the defeat If he'd won some sort of fluke victory Major General Baker would have failed on another bloody field Only through death could he inflict such damage on others Baker's belief That the officer who dies with his men will never be harshly judged received ample vindication in wartime Washington. His rash assault on glory, at the expense of the lives and careers of others, however, deserves that harsh judgment.
0: Now it uh, is my pleasure, during the uh, rapid tape change, you've all heard of the Blakesley Clicks Loader, this is the Hewitt Quick Loader, coming up. It is my uh, pleasure, John, to present you with this uh, handsome mug, this is, uh, we may rename this in honor of your talk, the McDougall Memorial Mug, <laughs> presented to John Y. Simon for Gallant Service, the Civil War Round of Chicago, June the 9th, 1989. John? In a highly
2: decorative box.
0: (laughs) And now, as is our custom, we will ask if there are any questions from the floor. Yes, sir. Uh, McCall's withdrawal seems to be a central feature of this whole fiasco. Did McCall withdraw on his own initiative
1: known if he notified McClellan of his withdrawal? He was withdrawn on McClellan's orders. When he actually left? It's a very good question. Um, McClellan acted as if McCall was back in Washington on the night of the 20th, that is, the, the day before the battle. There's also evidence that uh, he returned on the evening of the 21st, or the, the evening of the battle, when when he did return. One of his subordinate officers, um, George Meade, had no use whatsoever for this. That is, he was roundly critical of McClellan for withdrawing McCall, for not knowing what he was doing, and then also of uh, Stone for not having been in a position to coordinate these various movements. Meade was convinced that this was a uh, military blunder. He he blamed Baker, perhaps to some extent, but didn't mention him uh, as much as he mentioned both McClellan and Stone. Stone and uh, McClellan received his condemnation for bad coordination. McClellan did, in fact, uh, uh, order that column back without telling Stone it was gone.
0: I finished doing some uh, research at the Clausius uh, Museum for Civil War. So I understand that that great Cincinnati of Northern Illinois, that shining
2: light, that great, <laughs> that great.
0: Can
1: you comment on that? I don't think he had a thing to do with it. <laughs> uh, actually, the uh, circumstances of his release <laughs> uh, are that uh, Congress had reenacted um, the Articles of War because everybody seemed to have forgotten about them, and they provided that any officer not charged after uh, 30 days had to be uh, released. So after Congress reaffirmed what had already been in the Articles of War, Stanton waited 30 days and then released Stone. Uh, for a, a little deal like that, he could have had Hurlbut's health, but it was not available at that time.
2: <laughs> what happened to Stone after he was released
1: from prison until he got to the protection? <laughs> a whole lot. Um, uh, including uh, service in the Red River Campaign, after which he resigned in 1864. Probably the most interesting thing uh, that happens during the Civil War is that uh, General Hooker, uh, given command of the Army of the Potomac and uh, feared as an erratic and uh, loose thinker, asked for Stone as his chief of staff in january 1863 and nobody has ever figured out why that is it's uncharacteristic of uh, hooker to do anything intelligent or to do anything (laughs) noble or to do anything gracious and yet here is this man who's lately released uh, from false and unwarranted imprisonment and hooker is going to bring him in as his chief of staff now it could also be uh, that Hooker wasn't aware that Stone had been in jail. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it's a, an, an odd moment of uh, uh, lucidity in Hooker's life that really has now received the attention it deserves. After uh, uh, Stone's uh, uh, service in the Civil War, he did uh, serve in Egypt for 13 years as uh, head of the Egyptian army with with some distinction, and then uh, returned to the United States, where uh, indeed he did work on the uh, base for the Statue of Liberty. He was never a successful commander in the Civil War after his imprisonment. Just a quick
2: footnote. Uh, uh two years ago, I handled Jeff Stewart's last two military dispatches <coughs> at Yellow Tavern, and the penultimate one said that the the, park, the enemy is across the bridge. I intend to punish them severely.
1: <laughs> 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 two hours later, I'm going be
2: <laughs> Well, thank you again, John. Thank you.
0: And now, the moment for which at least one of us has been awaiting i uh, I had thought uh, for a little bit about what I was going to say. I have would like to thank those people who have allowed me to make fun of them during this year. I specifically went into uh the Presidency here and thought that we were going to have a little fun. We've gone off the beaten track in some of our speeches and heard about some topics we haven't heard from before. Uh, They close Irish taverns uh, in Ireland with a song called The Parting Glass. And I think probably the first verse uh, would be appropriate to quote at this time. All the money that e'er I spent, I spent it in good company, and all the harm that I ever did, alas, it was to none but me, and all I've done for want of wit to memory now I can't recall. There's another quote from one of of my famous romantic poets that applies, and then up spake Herminius a Teuton young blood free I will stand at thy right hand and hold the bridge with thee. Blaze of Ancient Rome by Macaulay. The story of Horatius at the bridge of this one brave Roman soldier and two companions holding a bridge against an entire army so that people can get away. I never had to hold a bridge against an army but I had a number of people standing at my right hand. I had wonderful support not only from the officers and directors from the bulletin editors from the house committee from the book raffle committee and uh, one of my veterans terry carr will have to trudge into the next year as an evans freeman chairman as is the custom and i thank them for that support and before i turn the mantle of leadership over to dick mcadoo i feel it only appropriate to think back This has been a hard year on our organization. It seems that we have, from this podium, murmured name upon name of our dear friends. And thinking of them during this year, I think it might be appropriate to quote from perhaps uh, Marshall Krolick's favorite figure, John Wayne, when at the end of Fort Apache, he truly says, to the surrounded reporters, those of you who are around, they mention of the people who were killed in a particular battle, and he reminds them that no, they are not dead, that the names and the faces change, but they are never dead so long as the regiment survives. And none of our founders who have gone before to their last posting are ever really not here so long as the round table survives. And on that note, I would like to turn over the gavel of leadership to Dick McAdoo, who will take us through another year. Richard? Don't tell me like Baker you're gonna refuse the commission.
2: I wasn't waiting for your applause, I wanted to see how long it takes him to
0: start sweating. <laughs> I thought like Baker you were going to refuse the commission, Dick.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Uh, does this mean it's all mine now? It's all yours. Get your butt off my stage. <laughs> <laughs> now, <clears throat> hey, before you go, before you go. <clears throat> uh, before Sully goes, we, we have to give him a hand, please. And, uh, you know, from out there things sure look different, don't they? <laughs> I, uh, <clears throat> I don't think any of you have known that I've ever been ashamed to go around and ask for five or six desserts, but all of a sudden you guys look mean. What I was going to say <laughs> was <clears throat> one of the things in uh, conversation with Sully and uh, some trips with him and all, uh, Sully uh, likes to collect Illinois paper by Illinois paper, whether it be Illinois uh, uh, regimentals or whether it be notes from generals or whatever. And I thought, boy, that would really be something nice to get Sully as a gift from all of you for what he has done. Uh, I think Sully is still laughing about uh, a number of us who have searched and searched and searched. And I think if someone ever finds a case of Illinois paper, they've gotta be uh, just instantaneous success and uh, monetarily rewarded but sully this isn't really illinois paper that we have for you but uh, we give this with full thanks from all the members of the round table for your thank year. you thank, thank you very much thank you. Uh, i too just would like to say thank you for each and every one who has helped me over the years who has given support so that uh, i could stand up here and and had the honor of uh, having this uh, position. When I started last year, I was two things. I thought, well, I would like to do something for the round table so that perhaps I, you know, would have a memory other than saying McAdoo, oh, yuck. Uh, So I started thinking back about some of the uh, the, the past presidents in the 12 years I had been here. And uh, if I could just run through a few, Marv Sanderman, I think to me, it was Marv's enthusiasm. Marv never could wait to get up here and to, to get started. Dan, uh, I always remember his relation of events. I don't care what it was. He always had some way to relate today to what happened at some point uh, in in time. Uh, Merle Sumner, uh, he always talked to the 100 years ago today, you know, from Civil War, day by day. Pat, of course, we remember as the, the First Lady. Uh, Sullivan, we remember for his verbiage, <laughs> and any of you, if you wish, my briefcase is back there and you can put my approbation in it as you leave, I for whatever that uh, could be. There's um, three other people, uh, Glenn Wicke, Bob Walters, and Bob Frankie. I will probably always remember them as presidents who used to show up at meetings and we haven't seen since. So, but... To add perhaps a little something to what I would like to do next year in addition to my speakers and not to take away from the, the speakers, but uh, in talking to a number of people I find that, uh, yeah, they very knowledgeable of the war, but the practical things such as uniforms or what the guys did or didn't do, what they look like, uh, the little things. So, as you know, I've been a reenactor for a number of years and have... Uh, uh, we even have uh, the table with Jim Sones and uh, his guys, uh, he says he has six of the first Michigan. So uh, before the meetings, uh, during cocktail hour, next year we plan on having uh, some of the gentlemen show up. Uh, Jim and his six Michigan will be here that you can talk to him about the engineers, about uniforms. We're going to have uh, uh, a southern gentleman and a lady with uh, her award-winning uh, ball gowns. We'll have a Pfeiffer. Uh, Dan, Sharpshooters, we'll have, uh, some of them will be in, we'll have a cavalryman for a marshal, and uh, we'll have a bugler, so we'll have something uh, perhaps uh, to to let everybody uh, in, and also uh, to compete with the Christmas music, I have a fifer and a drummer who will stand at the back of the room and uh, uh, compete. So the second thing I was going to tell, in trying to come up with, with speakers and I said, well, I, you know, I don't know, and I went to uh, you know my very close friend, Jensen, and he said, well, one thing, you gotta have a battle or you'll be impeached. <laughs> well, we have one battle next year. Uh, I've never really been a, a battle fan, and I just knew that 80 some percent of these meetings had to be on a battle. I was convinced of that. So I went back the last 10 years, and in 10 years between having breaking it down to battles, breaking it down into a singular person, such as, you know, a general, or breaking it into miscellaneous, which be like the Nevins Freeman, uh, a group, a movement, or something. There was eight difference in, in breaking those down. So I added Solly's in, if I add mine in, 120 meetings, we will have heard 37 battles, 41 singular persons, and 42 miscellaneous. So it's only a split of five in those groups. So I was wrong in my assumption of having all battles and 80%. So if I could close by just saying, please remember uh, the executive committee meeting on June the uh, 17th. The picnic is July the 23rd. Uh, In the newsletter was the the little uh, article, a reservation or whatever to send to Nate Yellen. Please send that back so that uh, we can see everyone at the uh, picnic. And then lastly, or next to last, once again, could you please give a hand for all of those who served uh, to make the round table a success for its uh, 48th year, including Solly. So, please be careful over the summer. We'll see you for the Nevins Freeman, which is September the 8th. It's Dr. Neely, and that will be our 483rd meeting. Thank you very much.